Hi there, and welcome to Dan the River, a history of hydropower in Aotearoa. My name is James Macbeth Dan, and I'm your host. I've been a little bit obsessed with dams ever since I used to build them on the beach as a kid. There was something wonderful about trying to contain the water using a collection of rocks, sand, and bits of driftwood, and an acknowledgement of the power of nature and the transience of human existence when you'd come back the next day and find it all gone. In New Zealand, and especially in the South Island, the abundance of fast-flowing rivers has made hydroelectric power the logical basis of our electricity network. Like our rivers, the subject is anything but dry, and through this series, I'm going to tell you why. In this episode, we're going to talk about the earliest power projects in New Zealand, their connection to the expansion of industry and the growth of our towns, and the way the government stepped in to become the power broker. The first use of electricity in New Zealand was for communication, rather than lighting or heat. This was the country's first telegraph line, which linked the Dunedin city with Port Chalmers. In a similar fashion, Christchurch and Littleton were linked in 1863, followed by Invercargill and Bluff in 1864. With telegraph lines popping up all over the place, Parliament passed the Electric Telegraph Act in 1865, which established a government monopoly over the transmission of messages, and provided for the state construction, maintenance and regulation of telegraphic communications. The two main islands were linked by telegraph in 1866 with a Cook Strait cable. By the early 1880s, news of electricity's uses were beginning to spread to the colony, bolstered by high-profile inventors like Thomas Edison. In 1882, the Roslyn Mills factory in Dunedin was lit up, becoming the first use of electricity for a practical purpose. The Kaiapoi Woolen Mills followed suit in 1883, and in June of that year, Parliament was lit up by 300 swan lamps, with electricity being generated by a gas engine. But the first significant use of electricity and using water to generate it came in the gold fields of central Otago. Gold mining had driven much of the economy of the country, especially in places such as central Otago. But heading towards the end of the 19th century, this was less about hardy men with picks and pans and more about industrial processes to extract the precious metal from rock and riverbeds. Many of these schemes used steam power, driven by coal and wood, to create motive force. However, central Otago wasn't particularly blessed with reserves of coal or forests ready to feed the fire. It did have plenty of water though. The Bullendale scheme on the Shotover River was the first significant project to generate electricity and transmit it for purposes other than lighting. The mine itself was very isolated and the equipment had to be carried and carted in fairly trying conditions. Construction began in 1885 and generation began in 1886. The plant involved two 6-foot, 50-horsepower Pelton wheels, which were driven by water diverted from a nearby stream. The powerhouse was more than two miles away from the stamper battery which required the power, and so transmission lines had to be run to cover the distance. The mine itself continued until 1907, and the plant was broken down during the First World War. One of the names that crops up frequently in the early development of power in this country is Walter Prince. Described as a showman, an entrepreneur, but a mediocre electrician, he arrived from Melbourne on a boat with an auspicious name, the SS Manapori, on an auspicious date, the 22nd of February, 1883. The ship itself had electric power, which ran the incandescent lights on board. Prince was meant to be the New Zealand Electric Light Company's engineer in Littleton, lighting up the wharves, but he was better as a promoter than as an engineer. After a number of issues with Prince, the port eventually gave the contract to another company and Prince ended up heading south towards the mines of central Otago. Here, he was involved with the Bullendale scheme. However, once it was up and running, again, the electrical system never quite performed as he said it would and he was quickly moved on. 
At this stage, he turns up in Reefton, where this electric rogue will play an important role in New Zealand's first public power scheme. The small buller town of Reefton might seem a million miles from the bright lights of the big city, but in 1888 it was the first town in the southern hemisphere to switch on a public electricity network. As we've just seen with Bullendale, early electricity tended to follow mining and industrialisation. The West Coast gold rush began after two Māori men, Ihaia Tainui and Haimoana Tauko, found the precious metal at the Taramakau River in 1864. By 1866, Hokitika was the largest settlement in the country, with a population of 25,000 and more than 100 pubs to service them. The rush eased off from around 1867, but many prospectors stayed on. The town of Reefton was close to a quartz reef, hence the name of the town, Reefton. Quartz was mined from the drift, and the gold was then extracted from this by crushing. Just two kilometres up the river from Reefton is possibly the best-named place in New Zealand, Crushington, which apart from being the birthplace of Jack Lovelock, was one of the sites where the quartz was crushed. During the early 1880s, a number of tours and circuses seemed to have stopped in Reefton and put the idea of this magical new form of energy in their heads. Our friend Walter Prince stopped by and suggested that water could be taken from the nearby Inangahua River, and in 1884 and 1885, the fantastically named Woodyear's Electric Circus made appearances in the town. In late 1886, Prince reappeared in the town, boasting of his successes with the Bullendale Project. After a public meeting, the Reefton Transmission of Power and Lighting Company was formed on December 6, 1886, with 65 shareholders in the town including Prince. The plan for the power plant was to divert water from the Inangahua River about a mile upstream, pretty close to Crushington actually. It would then be carried by a six foot wide, five foot deep race with tunnels to a powerhouse which was across the river from the town. Construction on the water race began in mid-1887 and was completed by January of the following year. If you've ever been to the west coast and experienced the thick native bush, the voracious sandflies and the somewhat frequent rain, you'll understand how difficult it would have been to build this race by hand. The machinery was installed from April of 1888 and on August the 1st 1888 Reefton witnessed the first public generation and transmission of electricity in New Zealand. Three days later Walter Prince invited a crowd to Cater's Oddfellows Hall as he demonstrated how the new supply could power in excess of 50 lamps. Electricity is such a given to us that it's hard to imagine the wonder it must have caused 130 years ago. Fortunately, we have an eyewitness account as recorded in the Inangahua Times. A large crowd of eager spectators lined the riverbank at the rear of the town to witness the display, and they were not kept long in suspense. For shortly after 7pm, the noise of the inrush of the water to the turbine was heard by those at hand, and almost at the same instant the bright luminous rays of the arc light burst forth, lighting up the whole scene with strange but dazzling brilliancy. The light at first became somewhat unsteady, but after a time became more fixed, though not always brilliant. The spectacle was, however, very beautiful, weirdly beautiful, rendered so by the density of the shadows cast by surrounding objects. The outlines of the mountain ridges were as sable bands drawn across the luminous arm, and so altered the appearance of landscape as to render it scarcely recognisable. About the station, it was light as day, but the perspective was terribly confusing, and many people got into difficulties through trying to climb over the shadows of fences and walking through the substances. The whole of the machinery worked splendidly, and so truly that one would hardly know it was in motion but for the low whizzing noise of the belts 
rushing over the pulleys and the light scintillations from the dynamo. After this successful demonstration, there was a rapid uptake from the residents. The public could buy power for £3 a light, whether it was on or not, from sunset to sunrise. Connecting to the supply cost £1, and the connection was done by either the local plumber or tinsmith. By September, 130 lights were being served. However, it wasn't long after the scheme got up and running that the Kiwi tradition of complaining about electricity began. The supply itself was intermittent, partly due to the installation of the underground cables. Much of the boxing was made with raw totara, which had a tendency to get quite wet and rot when it rained, which was, well, all the time on the coast. Prince was unable to fix this, and his services were soon dispensed with. He forfeited his 2,000 shares and left town. A certain J.J. Morton came in, relayed and replaced the wires, and by Christmas of 1888, 500 lights were being served. For the next decade or so, the scheme ran along pretty smoothly. In 1901, a new dynamo was installed at the plant. As with all the early projects, demand fairly quickly exceeded supply. To try and meet this demand, a steam turbine was salvaged from a wrecked ship near Greymouth. However, this wasn't hydro-powered, but instead fuelled by Reefton's other natural asset, coal. In 1946, the Grey Electric Power Board purchased the company, and three years later, Reefton became part of the wider AC network. Today, there isn't much left of the original powerhouse, just the foundations really. If you happen to be in town, follow the signs, or visit the dock website for instructions about how you can take a short 40-minute round trip to inspect what was the first municipal power supply in the Southern Hemisphere. Sparked into action by Reefton, the biggest cities clambered to get their own electric supply. Of all the big cities, Wellington was the first to try and embrace electric power. It first considered electric lighting in 1887, though nothing happened until two years later, when, in 1889, the Gulcher Company established two stations to supply lights in the Te Aro and Lambton Key areas. These ran on four turbines, which were driven by water directly from the water mains. The Panama Street station was supplied from the water mains in Featherston Street and discharged straight into the harbour, while the Manor Street plant discharged into the Te Aro stream. The plants suffered from a lack of water and the supply of electricity was similarly variable. After two years, the company went into liquidation. It was then reconstituted as the New Zealand Electricity Syndicate. The Manor's station was closed while the Panama Street station was expanded. The New Zealand Electricity Syndicate lobbied the government to develop electricity in Wellington, Christchurch and Auckland. And in 1893, the syndicate installed a new steam plant on the site of what is now the public library. Christchurch was late to light up, especially compared to Wellington. As with Dunedin, which we'll talk about soon, the city had a strong and powerful gas works who were vehemently opposed to any competition for lighting from electricity. The council called for tenders for an electricity supplier in 88, but nothing came of it. They called again for tenders in 1892 to run the street lamps, but again electricity was rejected in favour of gas. Even though electricity would provide 20 times the light, it was going to be three times the cost. A number of private power plants did exist, generally attached to industry. In 1899, Arthur Dudley Dobson, the engineer and surveyor who gave his name to the first colonial route through to the west coast, Arthur's Pass, was commissioned to prepare a report on the potential of the Waimakariri River for electricity generation. This led to the council in 1902 passing an act which empowered them to raise loans and build a scheme on the river. However, the proposal went no further. In 1903, a steam-generated plant began operating at the council's Armagh Street rubbish incinerator. It initially supplied 100 kilowatts, but was soon inadequate for the supply required. 
Another 150 kilowatt generator was added in 1905, and in 1910, two more 200 kilowatt steam-driven generators and a coal-fired boiler were added. As well as this, the Christchurch Tram Board built its own plant in 1905, with two 500 kilowatt steam turbines, which was supplemented with another unit in 1907, and then a further 1,000 kilowatt unit in 1910. It was clear that there was a rapidly growing demand for power in the city, and that something needed to be done to address this. There are a couple of other small schemes that I need to mention before we get into the bigger ones. In 1898, the Taranaki town of Stratford built a small hydroelectric plant on the Patea River, which powered the electric lighting in town. The following year, Parihaka Pa made street lighting available, driven by a generator attached to their piped water supply. And in 1902, Patea itself commissioned the first municipally owned generation and distribution scheme in the country, a model that was followed the year after by Hawea. Much of the early demand for electricity in the bigger cities was driven by the tramway networks. In 1898, the Dunedin Council bought the tramway's concession and decided to electrify the system. By 1900, the council was operating the country's first electrically powered trams, using power generated in a steam plant. As demand for power and tram routes grew, the council started looking into alternative ways to generate the power required, and this is how the Waipori scheme came about. The Waipori scheme was a very large hydro project for its time, and the success of it led to demands from other cities for similar projects. Lake Waipori is around halfway between Mosgiel and Lawrence, southwest of Dunedin, in the hills above the Tairi Plains, and not far from where the airport is now. There had been gold mining in the area since 1862, and by the end of 1864, there were more than 3,000 miners on the Waipori River and its tributaries. The river itself flows through a narrow gorge where it drops more than 200 metres in around 4 kilometres, making it an ideal site for hydroelectric generation. The first plans to build a station on the river came around 1900, when there were more than a dozen gold mining dredges operating on the river. Gold dredges were a common sight in the Lower South Island in the late 19th century. A New Zealand invention, they were large barges that sat on the river, picking up the gravel from the riverbed and filtering it out in the hope of finding gold. The tailings were then released back into the river. They were essentially really big gold panning devices. The first dredges, invented in 1881, were steam powered. In 1890, they started moving to electrification, which often required a custom built generating plant being built on the riverbank, supplying the almost stationary dredge via cable. Dunedin, which was the largest city in the country at this point, after more than two decades of gold powered expansion, was at the forefront of dredge design. Charles Suhoy, a Dunedin businessman, designed a bucket dredge, which he then had built in a Dunedin foundry. He then put this into operation successfully on the Shotover River. By 1900, there were 228 gold dredges operating in Otago and Southland alone. And though they got bigger and more modern, they continued to operate through the 20th century, with the last dredge continuing to work on the west coast until 2004. Anyway... As mining in the Waipori area became less viable by hand, the gold dredges moved in. However, it was very difficult to get coal into the area, which limited the number of dredges that could operate. Unlike the west coast, the Otago-Clutha region didn't have large reserves of burnable fuel, either from coal or firewood, so the shift to electricity made sense. A Waipori Falls electric power company was formed in 1902, but nothing much came of it. Back in Dunedin, the council was deliberating over how to power the trams, initially selecting a much smaller site, the Lee Stream, to build a hydro plant. However, after the contractor for the Lee Stream pulled out, the council decided to go with the Waipori scheme and engaged the contractors who were building the new electric tramway system, 
Sydney's Neuess Brothers, to build the hydro scheme as well. The plant was opened on April 27, 1907. However, there was initially no water storage for the scheme, so generation was often seriously interrupted. By the end of 1907, it was clear that extensions were needed. Tributaries of the Waipori were investigated, and in 1909 an earth dam was built, forming a lake which was named Loch Loden. Further extensions to the scheme were made, with a concrete arch dam being built at Pioneer Creek and creating Lake Luella. The initial generating capacity of the plant was 2,000 kilowatts, with two 1,000 kilowatt Pelton wheels. This was doubled in 1910 to 4,000 kilowatts, and then a further 2,000 kilowatts of generation was added in 1913. Further enhancements and additions continued to be made to Waipori throughout the 20th century. In 1931, a new dam was built, creating Lake Mahinarangi. This dam was raised, as in increased, not destroyed, in 1946, going from 20 metres to 33 metres. Multiple powerhouses exist downstream of the dam, with numbers 3 and 4 being built in 1954 and 1955 respectively. By 1990, the generating capacity of the Waipori scheme was 83 megawatts. The success of the Waipori scheme had shown the benefits of electricity in an urban environment. Up until this point, the power schemes had been pursued by individuals, companies or municipal councils. It took some time for the government to see the potential of hydroelectric power, but when it did, it started building them with aplomb. While the story of those bigger dams will be covered in subsequent episodes, we do need to look first at the legislative framework and the state's first forays into generation. The Liberal government of Richard King Dick Seddon was in power from 1891 until 1912. At the age of 21, Seddon had moved to the west coast and had been heavily involved in the politics of the area, first elected Mayor of Kumara in 1877 and then to Parliament in 1879. He was known as an advocate for miners' rights, and many of the early pieces of legislation that related to the control and use of water are strictly in relation to its use in the mining industry. Through acts relating to the goldfields and the mines, the government had taken a strong controlling position over water. The Mines Act of 1877 provided for the appointment of a mining registrar, who could license the construction of dams and water races, and also the taking of water for uses in mining, driving machinery and irrigation. A licence could only be issued after the race had been mapped and an opportunity had been given for objections to be lodged. In 1882, the Public Works Act was concerned with water and gold mining districts and put control of the supply into government hands. The Mining Act of 1886 and a further amendment in 1891 further consolidated the government's control over water resources by ensuring that anyone wanting to dam or divert water had to obtain a licence. The Electromotive Power Act of 1896 stipulated that any generation or use of electricity for motive power would require the permission of central government. No local authority could grant this right. At the end of the 19th century, the government saw gold mining as the primary use of water. Then in 1903, the government passed the Water Power Act, with near unanimous support in both houses. This vested in the Crown the sole right to use water for electricity generation, or to grant dispensations for others. Private enterprise was to be excluded, except through local authorities. The Waipori scheme had made the government very nervous, as, in this case, a private company had obtained the water rights for free, and then subsequently the Dunedin Council had had to purchase them from them. Hydroelectric power did have an advocate within the Liberal government in William Hall Jones. Hall Jones was the Minister of Public Works from 1896 till 1908, and under his watch, Public Works Department officers began collecting hydrological data in the early 1900s. 
Hall Jones invited an American engineer, L. M. Hancock, to visit New Zealand. Hancock was working in California, which had many similarities to New Zealand. As well as having a booming population driven by the rush for gold, California had lots of water that was high up in the mountains, which could be harnessed for electricity generation as long as transmission over long distances could be achieved. In 1901, the Colgate plant had opened, which generated power on the Yuba River, and then transmitted it to Oakland, more than 200 kilometres away. When it opened, this was the greatest distance that electricity had been transmitted at that time. Hancock was in New Zealand between October and December 1903, accompanied by an engineer from the Public Works Department, Peter Seton Hay. Hancock prepared a report which considered 43 sites, mainly in the South Island. Hay produced an even more detailed report, which evaluated more than 60. In his report, Hancock estimated that more than 2 million horsepower of generation was available, at a time when New Zealand's total power use, including all of the railways, was around 250,000 horsepower. To quote Hay, There seems to be every reason to suppose that the gradual development of water power would accelerate the general industrial process of the colony by providing a supply of cheap power, much cheaper than steam or other motive power, and in a form to easily meet the varying conditions of service. Peter Seton Hay was born in Glasgow in 1852 and arrived in the Edinburgh of the South in 1860. He was the first person to graduate from the University of Otago with a BA in 1877 and gained a Master's in Maths the following year. He then entered the Public Works Department, rising to the role of Engineer-in-Chief. He was the person who selected the rope for the Otera Rail Tunnel, the vital rail link between Canterbury and the West Coast Goldfields, which runs through the previously mentioned Arthur's Pass. Hay died in 1907, and while nothing much came of his report when it was completed in 1904, it became the basis for much of the subsequent development led by the Public Works Department. When the report was completed, Seddon wasn't keen to borrow much, and the money that he was borrowing was put into the government's main infrastructure priority, which was the railway network. When Sir Joseph Ward took office following Seddon's death in 1906, he loosened the purse strings a little, but still the main focus was the main trunk line. The new Public Works Act of 1908 incorporated two relevant pieces of legislation, the Water Power Act of 1903 and the Electrical Motive Power Act of 1896. This further consolidated the control of hydroelectric development to central and local government. The explicit role of the Crown in the construction of stations, generation and the supply and sale of electricity was formally stated for the first time. There was also an amendment to the Act in the same year which slightly loosened control and the government indicated that it would allow the licensing of power to private enterprise under certain conditions. This is how the Horahora scheme was built by the Waihi Gold Mining Company. Built between 1910 and 1913, this was the first plant on the Waikato River at the Horahora Rapids. From the powerhouse, which generated 6,300 kilowatts, power lines ran over 80 kilometres to Waihi where it was used for crushing rocks and lighting the mines. The government bought out the plant in 1919, using it to supply power to more than just the mine. It was eventually deliberately flooded in 1947, when the larger Karapiro scheme was commissioned. The plant continued to run, even while the water was rushing into the powerhouse. The first scheme that the government actually built and ran itself, as opposed to buying out later, was Okiri Falls on the Kaituna River, an outlet for Lake Rotoiti. It transmitted power from the plant to Rotorua, 20 kilometres away. It ran from May 1901 until 1936, and then was dismantled in 1941, when the larger Waikato schemes started coming online. But this was all small fish. 
Finally, for this episode, we're going to look at the first major government-led scheme, Lake Coleridge. The lake itself is about 100 kilometres inland from Christchurch and about 500 metres above sea level. What made this a compelling early hydro project was the lake's proximity to the Rakaia River. The lake runs parallel to the river, but is around 150 metres above it. So the premise for the scheme was simple, to take water from the lake and using the natural head, run it through a series of turbines and then out into the Rakaia River. As the lake is very large, it didn't require the damming of any rivers, at least initially. On top of all of this, the scheme would be relatively close to Christchurch, which had a large and growing population that was clambering for an electricity supply. Construction began in 1912, and up to 400 men were involved. The workers building the intake, which was at the top of the site by the lake, lived in a shanty town of tents in windswept tussock country. If they wanted to collect the mail, they had to walk four miles to the public works camp, where construction had begun on the powerhouse. Transport to and from the site wasn't easy. It was more than 50 kilometres to the railhead at Colgate. 12,000 tonnes of cement, machinery and other materials had to be transported into the site, which was made even more difficult when the traction engines weren't able to operate during the winter. Apart from some work done by a steam-powered excavator, all the work was done by hand. This meant pick, shovel and wheelbarrow, with some relief from horse-drawn carts. All the concrete was mixed by hand, and the Lake Coleridge Tunnel was driven by hand with some assistance from compressed air drills. With so many workers on site, working by hand and in trying conditions, it was no surprise that they got a little unruly. In August of 1912, 32 Lake Coleridge workers formed a branch of the Canterbury General Workers' Union. They complained about being forced to eat at the contractor's canteen, who both overcharged them and underfed them. They also complained about unsafe work practices. They started striking in September, and after a third strike, two constables were sent in to restore order to the site. Though it was a Ministry of Public Works project, the construction of the tunnel was contracted out to Jay McWilliams. While the powerhouse and headworks were going according to schedule, the contractor was having trouble keeping up. The industrial action had led to questions being asked in Parliament, and a report was commissioned by Evan Parry, the first electrical engineer at the Public Works Department. His report said that the McWilliams operation had collapsed entirely, that he had run out of coal to work the engines and timber to line the tunnels. The site was unsafe, the food was bad, and, unsurprisingly, the men were leaving the site in droves. Parry recommended that the Ministry of Public Works take over the construction of the tunnel, but this advice doesn't appear to have been followed, at least not immediately. Further trouble arose in January of 1913, as most of the men on site left for Christchurch and work on the tunnel all but ground to a halt. While the contract to supply the Christchurch City Council with electricity was due to start on May 1st, 1914, it was clear by late 1913 that McWilliams could not complete the work on schedule. However, it wasn't until February of 1914 that the McWilliams contract was cancelled, with the Ministry of Public Works taking over the remainder of the work. Lake Coleridge Power Station was officially opened by the Prime Minister, William Massey, standing in the pouring rain on November 25, 1914. It required between 60 and 80 people to operate the station. Initially, the supply wasn't continuous, as the headworks were still being constructed. The plant only went into continuous operation on the 3rd of March, 1915. The lines to Christchurch were 100 kilometres long, carrying 65 kilovolts, which was stepped down to 11 kilovolts at the Addington substation. They were the longest transmission lines in the country. The plant initially generated 1,500 kilowatts. The government had negotiated with the council for them to take a large contract of the power. Within a year, as well as the CCC, the Tramway Board, the Harbour Board, three counties, 
eight other local authorities, three freezing works, two tanneries, two dairy companies, two flour mills and six other institutions were being supplied. Within two years, peak demand began to exceed supply. As Christchurch only had one major supplier, the supply wasn't always very reliable in the early days. On April the 20th, 1915, a thunderstorm broke down the insulation on the line, plunging the city into darkness. At the Theatre Royal, a performance continued with the aid of limelights, while at the Queen's Theatre, the orchestra played for an hour and a half in the dark until power could be restored. When power did come back on, this was thanks to the trash fire, aka the Armar Street rubbish incinerator. Power from Lake Coleridge wasn't restored until the morning. On the 1st of July 1918, massive snowstorms caused a complete breakdown of supply for several days. All communication with Coleridge was cut off and it was impossible to get any closer by vehicle to the lake than Hororata. Boris Daniel, who worked for the Ministry of Public Works, came up with an enterprising solution. Boris Eugenievich Daniel was born near Minsk, now part of Belarus, but then part of the Russian Empire, in 1889. He knew how to ski cross-country, but first he needed to find some skis. Eventually, someone asked the Canterbury Museum. They had a set of skis that had been part of Captain Robert Scott's 1912 Antarctic expedition. Not worried about the fatal precedent of the last expedition the skis went on, Daniel agreed to try and ski to the station. The museum were, rightly, concerned about using an artefact such as these skis in such a mission, so they insisted that Daniel keep the ski poles a significant distance from the skis, which meant he had to operate them in a very unnatural position, with the poles wide out from his body. After taking the train as close as he could, Daniel skied to the station, and communication between Coleridge and Christchurch was re-established. After spending the night at the station, Daniel returned to Hororata, justifiably buggered. Boris Daniel stayed with the Ministry of Public Works, and then the MED, until he retired. He died in 1984. As I mentioned previously, within two years, the demand for power had exceeded supply. Additional turbines and tunnels were added to Coleridge over the years. There were also a number of diversions made to the rivers around the lake, as to boost its level. From 1921, the Harper River was diverted into the lake, although the dam used to divert the river was breached repeatedly. The Acheron River was diverted into the lake in 1930, and the much larger Wilberforce River joined the party in 1976. When the plant initially opened, it generated 1,500 kilowatts. With all of these diversions in place, it generated 34,500 kilowatts. The success of the Lake Coleridge scheme convinced the government that the state was the right entity to deliver power in New Zealand. With their control over water resources, their ability to create or amend legislation as and when required, and their power to build things at scale, they would undertake a series of projects over the remainder of the 20th century that would ensure they truly had the power. So that's the first episode of Damn the River. I hope you've enjoyed it. This podcast was researched, written, presented and produced by me, James McBeth Dan. I also did the artwork and the music. So if you like what I've been doing, chuck us a follow over on Twitter at edmusic, which is at E-D-M-U-Z-I-K. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you happen to listen to these things so that you can get the next episode whenever that might be. Until the next time, hooroo.